it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Welcome back to the Evening Glass with Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy. In a moment, we'll continue Luke's absidarian adventure. We're going back to it. It's been some time with Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And later on, we'll talk about Black Klansman by Spike Lee, a picture that both of us were very excited about off the back of last year's Chirac, one of my favourite films of 2017. But first, do you remember, Luke, last week while recording our Mission Impossible issue for the electronic labyrinth i mentioned the reason i never saw mission impossible 2 yeah you said your tape cassette stopped i was reminded actually how archaic you are because um <laughs> when i was uh, we're prepping for an upcoming episode about the predator films aren't we which i'm looking forward mm-hmm. to and i had a day off the other day and i was in cex uh, and you know films in there now dvds in there are 50p because this stuff is uh like there's no resale value whatsoever. Anyway, I was going through to uh, to bulk out my Predator DVD uh, collection because I don't have all of them, and I saw so many copies of Mission Impossible Two, and I was reminded, of course, that film came out in the advent of DVD when DVD was really yeah. really beginning to hit. The PlayStation Two had come out, and as I went through the MI Two copies, I was reminded that's the exact copy that I had, and um, it, they all have this silver sticker on the front which says, uh, I think it's compatible with PlayStation 2. And that was a yeah. really big deal to people because they'd just got their PlayStation 2s and they could see films on a disc, uh, which for many people, of course, was the first ever time. And I, I was reminded then of you saying, oh, I've never seen Mission Impossible 2 because uh, my tape cassette that I was recording it off stopped halfway through. And I thought that was amusing because I figured, whilst the rest of the world is discovering this film on DVD... <laughs> You'd never, you've actually never gotten around to seeing the whole thing because your VHS stopped recording. I was part of that DVD boom. It was at university. A pal of mine, Bavik, had a PlayStation Two. He was the sort of character that spent all of his money and more on booze, and then while hungover or occasionally drunk from daytime drinking to get over the hangover, paced into HMV and picked up eight things. He, he did that with Dark Angel. He came to me and said, oh, "She looked fit." So I bought it. I don't know why I got it. And one of the things he brought home was Seinfeld. We watched that on his PlayStation 2. We watched the Notes About Nothing. We did that while hungover in our first year in halls. But yeah. I, I remember that liminal, Mission Impossible 2, Sixth Sense and High Fidelity all yes, it, yeah. got video releases with deleted scenes at the end of the tape. That's as if it, there was yeah. to be competition for a period, you know, as if, as if uh, the VHS makers thought, hold on, lads, listen, we can still bring this one back. We'll give them a little bit extra, stick on an eight-minute documentary at the end, and we've got the trailers at the beginning, which you can fast-forward through. That's got to be an advantage. That's a selling point. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, I only got eight, maybe ten minutes into it. Something was happening with Radish Abidjia, and then my tape snapped. And today, for the first time since then, for the first time in 17 years, I've had to open up a tape. And the surgery was successful, so I was watching a picture, and just as the credits kick in... The tape went fuzzy, and uh, a normal person would stop the film because it had finished. I thought, I don't want to watch the credits. And it wasn't because I thought that Iron Man might be in them among there somewhere. (laughs) Um, So I rewound it, played it again, and then it stopped and ejected. I thought, oh, well, that's all right. At least it's not stuck in the B&O because I've got the BO Vision set up 
and I don't know what happens if that if a tape gets stuck in there then I think it's stuck for good because I don't think I can call technical support from 1998 to come over to my house to fix it but the tape popped out and I found that the tape itself within the tape had snapped so I found the screwdriver kit with the tiniest screwdrivers and removed a screw from each of the four corners of the tape then focused for three minutes on the screw in the center thinking how the f do I get this mother f and realized I was turning it the wrong way I should have been going counterclockwise um, yeah, yeah. and I did the, the sticky tape thing what I noticed was that the, the reason it had snapped was somebody had already done the sticky tape thing mm. years ago it old it and I think it had just uh, 28 years later um, there we go we're waiting for that one aren't we? we've had 28 days yeah. and 28 <laughs> weeks 28 years later um, it, it had perished so I stuck it back together and I chanced it I couldn't be bothered to rig up my uh, secondary VCR to the decent television to the well when I say decent it's not so decent to me it's the flat screen I couldn't be bothered mm. with all of that so I risked it put it back into the B&O rewound it just a minute played it playback's fine rewinds fine success successful surgery very pleased about that 17 years <laughs> so the, the last time was Mission Impossible 2 so maybe this is a sign that I should get back to MI2 and because uh, it is a John Woo film after all and maybe I'll go along to <laughs> Cash converters, or whatever you said, it's, it is Matt. You could, I suppose, there's nothing stopping, there's nothing stopping cineasts going in there and buying twenty films they've never even heard of for yeah. for fifty p each. What would that be? That's a tenner. Twenty films yeah, for you, a tenner. Watch them, sell them on. I suppose. Music, yeah, there was or something. There was a couple of guys uh, next to me who couldn't believe the prices themselves. One of them exclaimed, "I've just got the first eight seasons of How I Met Your Mother for eight quid." <laughs> um, I wasn't quite sure why he was purchasing those, but that's fair enough. I do enjoy the show, but uh, I'm, I'm not quite prepared to sit there and go through the DVD box sets. But anyway, nevertheless, yeah, that was uh, an interesting trip into CEX, and you are right. You can get like a whole armful of stuff for hardly any money. I even picked up Starship Troopers, which I know we'll be covering at some point in the future. A few yeah. there that I picked up that um, you know I've never owned before, because it used to cost money, and now it doesn't, yeah. so... And n never before have I probably been aware of the value of what I'm buying in the sense that I'm not really buying the film. I'm buying a piece of plastic which happens to have the film on it. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, goes into the whole copyright disclaimer of you will not, you do not own the film. This You can't play it at an oil rig or at a school or yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> to which I was used to think as a kid, yeah, 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 I'm just whipping this out of my oil rig every day. Anyway... <laughs> I'm um, glad you've remembered that. I made that joke on the video club on Facebook a couple of months ago. A girl had posted a very old VCR she'd found and a few tapes, and she said it was from a prison. And I said, Jesus Christ, I, I honestly do walk around my neighbourhood and the London environment looking at derelict buildings and thinking, if that was an old school, I wonder if they've got an old tape player in there. So I've been thinking along those lines, schools and hospitals. She goes straight to prisons. And I said to her... <laughs> That's it, that's it. I'm jumping in a rowboat and I'm getting out to the nearest oil rig and I'm pillaging. But of that's course, the way to no, do it. you weren't allowed to do it on an oil rig. So it would all be covert. That's how, they'd never be able to bring them back to shore because the Coast Guard would be waiting on the beach. Oh, hello, hello. We knew you had VHS out there. Come on, hand them over. <laughs> Sounded a bit like Suggs there, didn't I, in the intros to their, to their videos? <laughs> You've seen our ass. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh I, I believe that's not Suggs at the beginning of the video that is uh Chaz Smash but nevertheless 
It's been the other week at the wedding. They did it, didn't they? <laughs> oh, they did. They did do it at the wedding. Um, also, a shout out to David Corrigan, at, who was at our friend Tom Rafe's wedding, where Tom had booked a really great Madness covers band. It transpired on the group thread the other day uh, on the WhatsApp that David Corrigan had genuinely thought that it was Madness. And huh. he, kept, he kept telling everyone throughout the wedding he couldn't believe Tom had booked them. To which everyone said, yeah, I guess he did a good job, you know, taking him as sincerely as they could. But, you know, nevertheless, he did think it was madness. And he's quite embarrassed because he has since gone around telling many people in public that his friend had booked madness to play at his wedding. Uh, And someone on the WhatsApp thread did say, what did you think when they did all the special songs then, Dave? And he said, I just thought they had to beef the set out a bit with something. I like that. I've... uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, those things which still aren't Googleable, and I've, mm. I've one instance of it. When I used to vacation in the south of France in my uncle's static caravan, at the caravan park bar, we'd see a band called Blah Blah. The lead singer wasn't French, and he was friends with one of the Lennons, Julian or Sean, who occasionally would come down and do something with him. They're one of the best bands I've ever seen live, because. Uh, you didn't know what you were going to get, but you were always pleased. I, like they played, I think they played Silverhead, and right. Um, also, uh, their repertoire was sensational. All of the seventies and all of the eighties and all of the nineties. But one of my favourite things they did was an interpretation of "Is it in your place or in my place?" by Coldplay. <laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know. But don't know. that track, they played that as though they were Fugazi. Right. And and that's just that was the best way to convey that song by them. They didn't come out and say this is shout out to Ian McKay we're going to play this like DC88. Yeah. But the way they played it live with their instrumentation and his singing and the sound mix made it sound like the the original Embrace or One Last Wish or Fugazi doing that track and it really brought out that it's a pretty good song. In the right hands. Keen are a bit mm. like that as well. When I listen to Keen, and I do sometimes as well, what's going on in my head? I'm filling out a lot of the sonic environment with more. Yeah. Because mainly they're piano, vocals, and drums. Yeah, but, but you I'm can hear the symphony. More stuff. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. And I've tried to find Blah Blah's performance. There's a two or three minute compilation on YouTube of what they do, generally speaking, what they do when they perform. But I will never. Unless I see them again and ask them, all I've got is the memory of them playing that Coldplay track, the name of which mm. I can't even ever get right. And it was yeah. really good. And those are special things. And again, like if we hadn't disavowed Dave of of, of that, mm. it's fun to think he would have thought he could have thought for ages. Imagine going back twenty years; he probably would have thought that for months or even years, yeah. potentially without the without the facility the very next day to say to people can't believe we saw madness <laughs> because of the ambiguities of conversation you know it might be two weeks be- between seeing him and then he says yeah that was terrific and y- you realize two years later whole it wasn't actually did you have you thought it was madness this whole time <laughs> yeah you're right you're right uh, whereas now um well like i just said a group thread etc you know it's pretty mm. simple to, to to nip that in the bud isn't it the listeners need to tell us the times that they've left something completely unsolved, but we'll need a, a kind of uh, a pact between us and the listenership 
that somehow we develop a way that they can tell us, but we won't solve it for them, and no one else will tell them. It's no, you know, it doesn't work, does it? There's no way to do it. There's no, no. way, to, and that's even better. <laughs> I think it's mentioned in a while we're young by Baumbach. Something comes up, and driver says, "Let's just not know." Attack of the killer tomatoes! Attack of the killer tomatoes! They'll beat you, bash you, squish you, mash you, chew you up for brunch, and finish you off for dinner or lunch. We'll get, we'll get back into the world of Adam Driver in a bit, but first up, Luke's A to Z, which we haven't touched on in weeks and weeks and weeks. We've done an awful lot, haven't we, with my A to Z of DVDs, which we cover um, without question uh, when we're able to. We've done the Alien films, we've done Amelie, we've we, we, we've done uh, we've covered a lot of ground. We're still in the A's, <laughs> and it's only been a couple of years. We are up to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, uh, 1978 parody, predating the uh, Zucker Brothers uh, airplane spoof by a good couple of years. So therefore, um, you know, I, I think it was, it's, it's, what, it's got one of those great claims to fame, but it was there first, but was less successful. It uh, was made yeah. for a shocking amount of money. It was $100,000, so it was barely, barely anything at all. And it's John DiBolo, Costa Dillon, and Stephen Peace, who are three university friends, college friends, went to film school together. And um, this is actually based on a short film in much the same way that George Lucas's THX 1138 is. And they actually went on to make a feature film. Even this film, though, is um, low budget. And, and it's, there's an interesting reason why I, I even bought this on DVD, because we tried to be as autobiographical as we can here. And Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, why on earth did I buy it on DVD? I don't mind spoof films. In fact, we've covered Airplane. That was in the A's. I don't, I'm not obsessed with this. I don't have all the scary movie films as a box set or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about Naked Gun? The Naked Guns? Well, I, I guess I do like spoofs a bit. I used to have Police Squad, the TV show, on DVD, and I've seen The Naked Guns plenty of times. Yeah. But the reason I actually got this DVD was uh, I was back at this back at university, uh, probably my first or second year, and I just remembered the TV show because there was an animated series um, in the very early 90s. So this is 78, but in the early 90s they did a animated TV show. And the reason for that is utterly bizarre. Do you remember the TV show Muppet Babies? Yes, I remember Muppet Babies. And I'm. that's the reason I knew about Attack of the Killer Tomatoes as well, because of the cartoon. From about 91, I suppose, it started showing on BBC One. As a child, I suppose... Yeah, it was like, it was like 9, 10, 11. And I had an awareness of the Troma films of Lloyd Kaufman through Toxic Avenger, because that had a cartoon as well. It did, I, yeah. I presumed that Attack of the Kill, for the longest time, even in the university, so for at least 10 years, I presumed that somehow Attack of the Killer Tomatoes was from the Troma stable, which it isn't. But I was thinking about this while watching this film for the first time. It turns out I'd seen the sequel with George Clooney, but I'd never seen this one. And I was thinking about how everything had cartoons. MC Hammer had a cartoon 25 yeah. years ago. Hammer Hulk Man. Hogan had a cartoon. Uh, ev everything did. Yeah, Mr. T, Adam's Family, Beetlejuice. And this is one of the... This and Toxic Avenger are two of the more unusual licenses which got Saturday morning cartoons. Because yeah, they're adult and it, films. And, and this, is, this has an adolescent mentality, but it's definitely an adult film. And I, I don't know how these things... 
So tell us, maybe you'll, maybe you'll know more, tell us. Well, it's just bizarre because, of course, this is almost ten years after the first film, The Muppet Babies, which was a TV animation, Saturday morning. Um, there was a segment, that they used to parody a lot of films in Muppet Babies, um, and there was a segment in one episode called The Weirdo Zone where Baby Fozzy talks about how he once faced an attack of the silly tomatoes. And the segment uses uh, clips from the from the film. And oh. in the end, Baby Fozzy uses a giant-sized ketchup bottle and he captures the silly tomatoes. Now, New World Pictures, who owned Marvel Productions, which made the Muppet Babies TV show, approached Foursquare, which was the the company put together by those, uh, those friends from college, uh, Tabello, Dylan and Peace, and about making a sequel to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes because this episode of Muppet Babies actually had like quite good viewing figures and, uh, and, and was obviously discussed on some level. So Foursquare, this was 10 years, don't forget, after the fact they'd made this original film together as a bit of a laugh, let's face it, because they do talk... Um, of, <laughs> again, this is the golden age of DVD when I was at university and I bought Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's a two-disc set, and I watched all the special <laughs> features last night for the last night, <laughs> which there's loads. Uh, loads of documentaries. You can have commentaries on all of their um, college uh, um, pieces, short films. It's remarkable. Uh, there's, uh, there's a short film about the Clapper Girl, who uh, was a part of the cast, uh, sorry, was part of the crew for Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. But they do talk in the special features about how they couldn't get into a lot of film festivals because the film blatantly had no redeeming qualities of any kind. And this is this is a bone of some contention. I do, I'm not sure how, to what extent they went out to make a bad film. And like we've discussed in here before, bad films when they're made by the likes of Ed Wood, are always a bit more fun when the person making the art truly wants it to succeed and is putting in everything they've got to it. But then, you know, what is produced is something unique in its own way uh, and glorious in its own shortcomings and failures. I think with Attack of Killer Tomatoes, some of the guys say, well, we were trying to make a decent parody picture. And then there are some people that I think it's quite clear that they went out to... Is it you know there's an element of being a provocateur and trying to enter film festivals and and uh, and have people spit on you and there was an element there <laughs> where um, maybe they took took glee an element of glee in that but nevertheless this film I guess had been a joke to some of them and it says ten years later Muppet Babies do a parody and New World approach Foursquare with a two million dollar budget uh, to make a sequel which of course compared to the hundred thousand dollars that the first one was made on is um is nothing it is you know is, is is remarkable sorry um so therefore the three of them get back together they work on a script and it that's called return of the killer tomatoes you're right a very early role for george clooney i've never seen that film return of the killer tomatoes but uh, that's what the tv show really is based on so the the, the kids animated show because return of the killer tomatoes is then a, a hit they kind of base the, the TV show on Return of the Killer Tomatoes, even though the TV show is called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's there then on the uh, Fox Kids Network in uh, the fall of 1990. It lasts for two seasons. The first season is episodic. The second season is um, more of an ongoing story, but was all played out of sequence and was eventually cancelled. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the shows from that era... that were played with that a lot of those kids tv shows were plagued with being played played out of sequence and 
you'd showrunners would change from season to season. Suddenly, the anim- maybe the people animating the show would change from season to season. It was definitely something that happened a lot in the early nineties, and and you get distinct periods of of the Saturday morning TV um, series. Um, but anyway, that's the killer tomatoes I remember with an evil doctor who made the tomatoes sentient. The story focuses on a pizza delivery boy and a hot girl he knows who turns into a tomato because the second film deals with people who turn into well tomatoes that, deal, that turn into people, etc. This original yeah. film is not like that. It's far more simple. And I hadn't watched it all the way through because I bought it at university and I hadn't been able to get through it. Because for £100,000, uh, um, the film's a bit challenging, you know? It, it, it feels rough around the edges. I mean, what did you think when you were watching it? I was pleased. You liked yeah. it? I like the satire of it and I think it speaks to its times. Post-Watergate, post-Saturday Night Live, at a time when it was trendy and hip to question authority. And to make authority look stupid. Uh, for the first time, America's a young country. You know, it was only 200 years old when Watergate happened. And even now, I think it's... I, I consider America as something of a teenager. It's adolescent in its outlook. Unsophisticated. Uh, you know, it makes fun of France. You know, it's so many films and television we watch. If uh, themes of sexual liberation are being discussed, they'll refer to France and say, listen, I don't know how they do things in Paris. As, as if... Um, that's a it's a bad thing to have adult mm. discussions around gender and sexuality and interpersonal relationships. Americans can't really can't really do a lot of that stuff. But uh, in the seventies, it did feel that there was. Oh, this is the interesting thing. Like we talked about this with Airplane, and we can talk about it as well with Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. There are elements of it which speak to the sexual liberation of the time an emancipation out of the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Now, a lot of it we might consider a bit seedy and sleazy, but I think that's that's a, uh, that's a society coming to terms with being sexually open, coming from a time when, the madmen time, when men had affairs, as they always did, and women had affairs as well, but none of it was spoken about, to a time by the mid-70s, that kind of, that Woody Allen milieu of cocaine at parties openly, and yeah. wife swapping, key parties, open relationships. And we see that in the low-budget cinema of the time. And so I, I like the satire of it. I, I like that um, this was one of the lines that I liked. There's a scene involving the president speaking with one of his functionaries who will drive the plot by trying to use the tomatoes to overthrow the administration. And this speaks to the times, post-Watergate, paranoid, distrust in uh, in authority figures and in institutions, that mm. Jaws, Steven Spielberg's Jaws kind of feeling. And the president says he was surprised, but nevertheless he was able to get re-elected, even though the public found out that he used the Statue of Liberty as collateral in what he yeah. calls an Arab loan. <laughs> the next line, he says to the bloke he's speaking to, Incidentally, Jim, you were in the Mideast last summer. How does the old girl look in the Dead Sea? <laughs> uh, and I like Magnificent, that. Magnificent, sir. There's, there's a lot of satire in there. That There's more than yeah. you think. Um, my, well, I, the one I noted down was the first big gag for me that really works well is when all the scientists and uh, and military personnel are 
getting into a meeting room to discuss the tomato menace and the meeting yeah. room is is too t- tiny you can't tell that immediately because of forced perspective but then as yeah. they're crawling into the room they all have to crawl over the table and yeah. slide into the seats and it's far too small and what someone apologizes and says this was the biggest room i could get on such short notice i'm very sorry gentlemen for the space and um they're talking amongst themselves waiting for the meeting to start which is wonderful because you don't often get that in films people just talking amongst themselves and yeah. um there's, uh, I mean, there's a Japanese scientist who's dubbed very badly, I guess, as a reference um, to the Japanese B-movies it's based on. But yeah, th- there's yeah. a lot of gags about bureaucracy. In well, perhaps we can give him a few more minutes. General, I've been meaning to ask you, have you heard anything about the Nuclear Strike Force Tactical Training Command meeting? You mean Operation Nishvik? That's right. Not really. I've been following the personnel proficiency planning for Pago Pago Paratroop Platoon patrols. Oh, Operation... <laughs> What's the poop on? Moving well. Did somebody mention Misfits? No. Ah. Well, then, uh, Mishkonk must be pretty well wrapped up. And there's the satire around PR as well. The press secretary goes to talk to that PR guy about how they can make the tomatoes look good and, and people are going to, you know, like them more, change the image of them in, in, the, um, in the public mindset. And uh, I think that the guy sings that the PR guy sings a whole song about how he can sell anything to anyone. I think it's the lyric. What the lyric I've got down here is some sell, some buy. And only we know why the rap is more important than the price. Important decisions are made each day, much too important for the plain folk to make. They're always in a bind. So we're here to help them make up their mind. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, mind there's, there's lots of satire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I liked that. Um... Watching old pictures, watching old comedies especially, it's interesting to see the through line of comedy, the development of comedy, and to be reminded that us in 2018, we're not the only people who are subversive and who thumb our noses at authority, that that's been happening for a very long time. Mad Magazine in the late 50s was one of the first places it started in mainstream American society, and I was reading those when I was 9, 10 years old. Comedy especially, as an expression, uh, has has developed over a hundred years. Pratt Falls were funny in the twenties, Keystone Cops and Laurel and Hardy. And we now consider that very childish. That would be on CBBC. And I think that we can see how far we've come and how far we've progressed in comedic terms because the satire of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and it is funny as well. It is genuinely funny and I laughed, but that satire would now be at the level of literally horrible histories. They still have their place, but it's at a much, a much younger level. Mm. But it, you know, it doesn't make it any less funny, and it doesn't make the humour any less worthwhile. And I, one of the things I liked about the scene you've mentioned, I liked it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, in terms of low-budget filmmaking, it struck me that perhaps the concept was we can only find a small room for this scene. Would it be funny if a briefing room scene were held in a very small room, a room far too small to hold that briefing scene because in a big budget picture it would be in an aircraft hangar yeah or a, a ken adam designed doctor strange love style yeah scenario that's a good so point. that that maybe the brain maybe the thought they had was if we put it in a small room is something can we get something funny out of that yeah the answer is yeah it's, it's pretty funny to see them scrabbling over the tables every time they have to move that is funny and yeah. then the second and then in terms of satire in terms of an acerbic satire, it also 
does inherently criticise authority and authority figures and the military-industrial complex, which is what was in vogue in the 70s. And, it, you know, we still do it now, of course, but it, that was dangerous comedy around that time. Comedy ages worse than many other genres. Like Bonnie and Clyde, for instance, from 67, 68, the, the violence in that is still arresting. It is, and yeah. the performances, the, the dramatic performances are fine. I mean, if you go back to pictures in the forties, when our con- our conceit of them is that they all spoke much more quickly, that's a little bit jarring. And that, uh, for me, that's one reason why Jimmy Stewart stands out. When we watch those pictures now, Jimmy Stewart's gentle, stuttering delivery is quite different to a lot of those around him, and he seems more like a modern actor. So, yeah, so my, my point being that dramatic roles, Midnight Cowboy in 67, 68, that stands up alongside anything now, and that film's 50 years old. But comedy from the same time, even great stuff, and I found this with Young Frankenstein, you're sitting watching it, and you're having to think to yourself, and even turn to your partner and say, well, I suppose this was pretty funny at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, or, or you think, yeah, that's... That's kind of, huh, that's, that's that's kind of good, but it always reminds me of the comparison I make with rap, where why was rap so slow through the eighties? Why did it take so long for rap to quicken? Is it because there was a notion that, like with Stevenson's rocket, man cannot travel faster than on a horseback? <laughs> yeah, or his you know his brain will rock against his cranium and explode. You know. It was the same set of rap. Somebody said, oh, listen, I'm going to go as quickly as I can. Well, hold us. Listen, well, your jaw could fall off. Just keep it simple. It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mum's making turkey and collard greens. Just like that. Don't go any faster than that. We just don't know what could happen. It, it does feel a little like that with some comedy. But I found this... Did you find it? I found it really funny. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> did. Um, last night is the first time I watched it all the way to the end, to the point where I was actually quite shocked that... Um, of course, Mars Attacks must give reference to it because in Mars Attacks they kill the aliens by playing terrible country music through a loudspeaker. And in this one, of course, they're, they're defeated, the tomatoes are defeated by the worst song of all time, a song called Puberty Love. Uh, which, uh, that was sung as well by a teenager at the time, and that man grew up to, that teenager grew up to be Matt Cameron, the drummer of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. It's, I think it made a big impression on people, and um, I think that I think it's mad that there was an animated series out of it because it was the late eighties, early nineties, and apparently, like you say, everything had an animated series made out of it back then. Uh, and the more you think about it, the more you realise. But I did enjoy it very much. There are moments where um, there are moments where you know, I guess, I guess it's just of of the age it is. It. It didn't feel quite as fast as as something we we might have today, but there was some fun satire, and um, like the songs are all good. Uh, it, it's mm. it's advertised as a musical. I think these days again, you might you might even get one or two more songs in it. There aren't that many in it, but but the ones like I just mentioned, the one that the PR guy sings, for example, and um, there's one just before the actual war. I don't, I didn't write any uh, note down any uh, lyrics in that, but that was that was really fun. 
So, uh, so yeah, there's an idea for, you know, for, from um, a short film at college, uh, which is on the two-disc special edition DVD, which I have, uh, and you can you can see it. A lot of the gags, shot for shot, are in that original um, idea, uh, in that original short film. Uh, and I, I think, that, you know, for $100,000, it's a film that clearly made an impression, and uh, it does have a cult following. And I'm really pleased that those guys managed to make a little franchise about it and I would love to see because like you said it's the second I think there was another two sequels after the second one and they were done very quickly I think a year or two mm. after the after them and I think it ended with the killer tomatoes take France or take Paris or something like that yeah and those two I remember those being on television when I was growing up and they are the 90s equivalent of the asylum these days Sharknado and Octopoid right snakes on a train but the first two, I think that, firstly, watching Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is interesting to see the progression of comedy. To see that in 1978, we can see the seeds of the anarchic tone of The Simpsons being sown. All of us have grown up on The Simpsons, and that is uh, comedy year zero for us. Those writers, yeah. the, the set of Oakley and Weinstein, Kogan and Wolodarsky, Al Jean, John Vitti... George Meyer, Brent Forrester, and Schwarzwelder, and at the same time, writing for Mr. Show, Saturday Night Live, Conan, Dana Carvey Show, Ben Stiller Show, Bob Odenkirk, Conan O'Brien, Dino Stamatopoulos, um, Robert Smeagol. But I think this is the sort of picture that they will have watched in their colleges. Well, when I say colleges, yeah, Harvard and Yale. It's astonishing that The Simpsons yeah. writers, as Jay Moore has said, The Simpsons writers went to Harvard and to Yale. The Saturday Night Live writers went to Harvard and Yale. You go there to become a, a world-leading surgeon or a research <laughs> scientist or a diplomat of the United Nations. And these blokes... Jay Moore has incredible things to say about it. Being surrounded by intelligentsia of that level and you're writing for Adam Sandler and Chris Farley. Mm. They don't require somebody with a degree from one of the nine best universities on the planet to do what they're doing well on the Hurley boy. But anyway, I hope our listeners will check out Attack of the Killer Tomatoes to see the progression of comedy, to see the lineage of comedy that we enjoy today and, and go back. Having said that, this is not just a museum piece. It isn't musty and dusty and something that's to be observed. A little bit like I found with Young Frankenstein and chortle occasionally and think to yourself, oh, I can see how that would have been funny. It is pretty funny. It is good. One of the bits I really like that made me guffaw, actually, was a, an establishing shot of a trolley car going up a hill with Alcatraz in the background. And the subtitle says, New York. Yeah. yeah. So we're so used to it because we've grown up with it, because of that set of comedy heads that came out of Army Man magazine in 87, 88 and went on to write for The Simpsons. And in, through The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live and Conan O'Brien's show and every all Americans that watched that and went on to write comedy by the end of the century and into this century, that's the standard. All goes back to a dozen people in yeah, you're 88, right. 89, 87. And it's so ingrained in us. So so watching a picture like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it's important to realise that somebody had to do it first, is what I'm trying to say. And that if we don't laugh that hard at Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it's because we've grown up with everything already achieved. Like punk, like going back and listening to The Damned or Pistols. Musically, it's just Chuck Berry and Link Ray played much faster. Mm. but we needed this to happen for everything over the last 40 years to happen 
Mm. This was where it all started. And then, of course, yes, you can go to antecedents like Kilburn and the High Roads and Dr. Feelgood. And I do. And they're really enjoyable. But yeah, as I say, it isn't something that needs to be embalmed and preserved and pickled. This is, I think, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is still today in 2018, a vibrant, enjoyable comedy. And the other thing is this. Another thing I meant to say was a formative experience for all of us is the first time that you see comedy that acknowledges its own artifice, that breaks the fourth wall. And I never really watched kids stuff but the kids stuff that i was down with the most was muppet babies which had an understanding of its pop culture environment and like attack of the killer tomatoes like the animated series both of them had indiana jones pastiches Mm. and that's what i looked for as a kid when i was seven eight nine years old that always interested me in the animated series it has a tomato that's dressed like indy and he looks over a mine shaft and he does the snakes, why did it have to be snakes line? But I can't for the life of me remember what he says instead of snakes. Right. But as a kid, as an eight-year-old, to realise that man on the television just said the thing from the other thing I like. Mm. And that's what Attack does here. And for me as well, Made Marion and uh, Merry Men yeah. was really important for me in the same way. It, it contextualises uh, yeah, it contextualizes itself and, and speaks to its audience with a a familiarity about the uh, comedy environment in which it's made. Some of the things that have uh, impressed themselves upon me the strongest when I was young was those works that referred to other works. It makes you feel a bit grown up. Anyway, Attack of the Tequila Tomatoes. Uh, It has aged well. I'm going to check out some of those sequels. The TV show is on YouTube for anyone who wants to watch it. We need to talk Black Klansman. Fletch... um, you can play us out, of course, on the final edit with uh, maybe the theme tune from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes because I know I'm going to miss her. A tomato ate my sister. <laughs> <laughs> Remember Hermit Barbage While taking out his garbage He turned around and he did see Tomatoes hiding in his tree Now he's just a memory Sacramento fell today They're marching into San Jose Tomatoes are on their way Black Klansman Um, This was a film that I uh, Again just before I went to CEX on my day off to stock up on Predator films, I went to go and see Black Klansman on its opening day. Uh, and, you know, I, I, do, I am a Spike Lee fan. I do like his films, Fletch. But you're a much bigger fan. You, you, I mean, you must have seen ev- every Spike Lee film. I haven't seen all of them by any stretch of the imagination. Although Do the Right Thing is one of my favourites. So um, this was one that... is. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like some Spike Lee films in this modern age feel like they come and go, a bit like a new Woody Allen pick. Uh, Black Klansman, however, in contrast, is one that's definitely had a buzz about it early on. Would you say I'm right? Yeah, he had a difficult period at the beginning of this century when he lost his cultural currency and people were no longer talking about Spike Lee joints. Bamboozled, for instance, came out 2000, which in tone is similar to this. It's also formally audacious in a way that Black Klansman occasionally is. 
Bamboozle didn't find an audience. Because it's challenging, and not brilliant either, a bit like Black Klansman, neither Bamboozled nor Black Klansman are brilliant films. They're both fine. But because they're challenging, they didn't find a receptive audience. And then Spike, he, as a filmmaker like Jonathan Demme, they're two of my favourites because they cover all facets of filmmaking. Both mm. Demi and Spike Lee make documentaries, make fiction films, music videos, performance films. Demi did Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert film, but Storefront Hitchcock as well, which is Robin Hitchcock playing in a shop, and Swimming to Cambodia, which is Spalding Gray talking for 90 minutes, doing his one-man show. And Spike's done similar stuff. Spike Lee did something similar with the original Kings of Comedy, which is about four important black comedians which had zero cultural penetration on this side of the Atlantic at the time in 2000. I think it's Cedric the Entertainer and Bernie Mac and a couple of others. I'm afraid mm. I can't remember them off the top of my head. I thought it might be John Witherspoon. I'm not sure. Maybe Steve Harvey. Okay. They just weren't well known over here. And so uh, that, to an extent, diluted his brand. Because with, with to an extent, with filmmaking, with funding as well, it does need to be... If, if not hit after hit, there needs to be, especially for, a, I would say, a, a black filmmaker in America, each of your films needs to either find an audience, uh, receive critical plaudits, or create a buzz. And Spike's films began to stop doing that at the turn of the century. 25th mm. Hour did well. She Hate Me was not well received. Inside Man. See, this is the thing. Like Twelve years ago, when Inside Man came out, I thought, this is fantastic. Surely this will see him placed in the firmament where he belongs. Now he should get funding for whatever he wants to do, and it should be plain sailing from here on out, because by then the bloke was 50-ish. He followed that up with Miracle at St. Anna, which didn't even get a UK release. It's a, a World War II film about black soldiers... Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it, John Turturro, and uh, I can't recall the black cast. Omar Benson-Miller from 8 Mile is in there. I haven't even seen that film. Uh, not because it's impossible to find, but it was buried, as mm. was Red Hook's Summer. And uh, then Old Boy was meant to be a, uh, at least a return to studio pictures that got proper releases. That did terribly, and it isn't very good. That was followed by The Sweet Blood of Jesus, very low budget, limited release reasonably well received mm. but it was only with Chirac I was excited once again about Spike Lee films I can't remember how where we first began with that um <laughs> what were you asking me were you asking how many I've seen <laughs> uh well I think I think Spike Lee has just dropped on off my radar a little bit not him as a filmmaker but but just just his releases I think you've covered that quite well I certainly haven't seen um all of his pictures but I, I was intrigued as to just how to what to what level you've been keeping up with his career. I suppose uh, Chirac's a good example. That's one that came and went fairly swiftly for me. Was that an Amazon release? Chirac came out at cinemas. Um, Taylor bought it to watch it. He did. Yeah, I watched yeah. it on. I watched it second run a few weeks after its original release. I watched it at the Regent Street Cinema, and that felt like. Its budget shows a little like with this one, but it did it did well everything that Spike does well, and it felt satirical and dangerous and honest, and brought together a lot of the a lot of the best actors that he's used in the past, like Angela Bassett 
and Samuel L. Jackson, who was in Old Boy, but they fell out just about 20 years ago on the release of Jackie Brown. Samuel L. Jackson defended the use of the vernacular in that by Tarantino. Spike Lee said, I'm not really having it. You know, you could replace some of those M-bombs with motherfucker. And he said, does Quentin want to be declared as an honorary black man? And subsequently, clearly, Sam Jackson sided with Quentin Tarantino and kept working with him. But over, the t- over time, they, um, Samuel L. Jackson and Spike Lee repaired those bridges and began collaborations again. I think the best thing that Spike's done this century, 25th Hour is really good, Inside Man's really good, but the most astonishing work of his this century is When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts. Right. Which is something of, uh, it's a spiritual successor to Four Little Girls. And When the Levees Broke is a, a colossal, expansive unpacking of Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath. I think it's as important and certainly as uh, emotionally bracing as Shoah. I'm careful in the way that I say that, but When the Levees Broke must be seen by everyone. By everyone. Essential for cinephiles. It's so important just for human beings. I recall watching that on, and that was something of an event. It was screened on Sky Atlantic as an introduction to their premiere of Treme. And I recorded that and I I paused it and I paused it and cried with anger at the obscenity of what had been allowed to happen to New Orleans because they're poor and black. Yeah. I don't I don't mean to be glib and I don't mean to be reductive with the argument, but that was the point of view that Spike was putting across. Yeah. And yeah. it was it was an utter obscenity. It's uh you and I remember it. I suppose you were 18. Mm-hmm. You were just about to come to university. I was just finishing university. Yeah. And these that was in the good old days when Kanye West was not only making hit after hit, but also wasn't utterly insane from grief <laughs> I was going to say odd, and then you went there, but fair enough. Yeah, and uh, him on television with Mike Myers saying George Bush doesn't care about black people, which became a pop culture touchstone and was referenced in Arrested Development, I recall, the Job's puppet wearing a sweater that says George Bush doesn't care about black puppets. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I'd like everybody to see Black Klansman, but I don't want people to sleep on the rest of Spike Lee's oeuvre. But Black Klansman, um, I did not believe that this was a true story. This is far from documentary. I did see an interview with 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 Evan Davies on Newsnight. Evan Davies almost called it a comedy at one point or, or said he was using comedy, uh, and he, he, he said, no, 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 it's, it's, I use humour, uh, and it, he, he wanted to be careful not to call it a comedy. It is a yeah. funny film. I don't believe it happened, but it is based on a book. A black man joins the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s, and uh, it's about, it's based, like I say, on his memoirs uh, as an undercover police detective. Um, Ron, Ron Stalworth... Is the first African American who who's hired by the Colorado Springs Police Department, uh, and after a brief stint in like the record room as a rookie, um, a couple of run-ins with white officers, he's needed, isn't he, in in the undercover department because there's uh, there's going to be um, a political rally and there's going to be black people there, so they can obviously use him as an undercover. Um, officer and that kind of begins this bizarre story there's never been a black cop in this city 
We think you might be the man to open things up around here. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. White America. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron, Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. When's the last time they let a rookie lead an investigation? Oh, that's right. Never. <laughs> okay. Become his friend. Let's get invited back. So what kind of stuff you guys do? Cross burdens, marches. This is fixing to be a big year for us. You asked too many questions. You undercover or something? We must unite and organize to fight racism. Are you down for the liberation of black people? Power to the people. All power to all the people. All power to all the people. It's right, sister. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. You're Jewish. That hatred, doesn't that piss you off? You're taking this Jew lie detector test. Why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game? I'm telling you, the wars are coming. White power! Black power! Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That's us. Stallworth brothers. We're on a roll, baby. America first. America first. I haven't gone to look for what the differences are. I haven't done any research as to what the differences are. What the film exaggerates between the memoirs. What the memoirs maybe even allegedly got wrong. I don't know to what esteem they're sort of held. But but dear lord, I, I as this film unfolded, I thought this can't have happened, and it can't yeah. have happened this way. I find I get an element of disappointment when a film is telling a true story but doesn't bother to stick to the facts of that true story. Uh, and I, d I don't know why I feel that, but ultimately you, you I don't can't, really care. You can't like, really do it in a couple of hours, can you? The, the ultimate, at the end of the day, yeah. with anything like this, you just got to get the essence of it, right? And, and a sense of it and use what devices you can to articulate that and then and move on, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I didn't interact with the film as any representation of true events. And I felt that Spike was reusing the polemical style from Bamboozled to put across his point of view, it's all right to be fast and loose with the facts of the matter, I feel. As long as you're clear to the audience, and from the very outset, he does make it clear, he contextualises it with Alec Baldwin's prologue, yeah. a ranting, racist, uh, establishment figure, mm -hmm. and then the epilogue, which shows last nutty two years, two and a half years of race relations mm. in America. Charlottesville and... Yeah, um, and I found that affecting. I I'll never and, get over and, the and again the footage of that car driving through people and stuff. I mean, it really brings yeah. the film to. A... He's a filmmaker using real life events to tell a story he wants to tell. So yes, he is he is potentially reconditioning what Charlottesville meant for this and for that. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm interested in what in what he's doing there, and the the anger 
I felt, again, at what I considered to be an obscene act, was as strong at the end of Black Klansman as it was during when the levees broke. Of course, for when the levees broke, I, I felt that for minutes and hours. For Black Klansman, it's just a, a very short burst at the end of the film. And then a shot of the American flag flown upside down, which is a sign that a ship is in distress. When a flag is flown upside down, it's a sign that that vessel is in distress, which I think is the case. And <laughs> the internet is already <laughs> full of 50 think pieces on what Black Klansman means mm. and why would it obviate that the bomb planted in the film was in real life used to attack gays while in the film it's going after black people mm. um i don't I, I i don't mind spike lee doing what he wants to do with things and and this is coming as well like um one of the most interesting aspects of black clansman for me and this is before we get to it as a as a piece of film as a work of cinema was spike lee historically uh, does a disservice to the Jewish community with his depictions of Jews. Now, number one, like I don't mind. That's his. That's his point of view. That's his opinion. I think Spike Lee's a bit bigoted, and I just don't care. He's honest in his opinion. It isn't crowdsourced. He hasn't aggregated it from a selection of a thousand Twitterati. He has in the past, um, particularly in More Better Blues with the Turturro brothers playing the Flatbush brothers, he's depicted Jews in an insensitive, mm. bigoted and racist light. Mm. And in response to that, when he was criticised by the Anti-Defamation League, he said, I don't care and I'm not going to change it. Hollywood's done this for black people for this many years. Hollywood's portrayed black men as crack dealers and only as entertainers and criminals. Here I am, I'm, de I'm depicting a couple of Jews that exploit the black entertainers around them. That's what happens in real life. You can't tell me it hasn't happened. You can't tell me it doesn't continue to happen. That's the film I made. And I respect Spike Lee for sticking by it. Mm. Um, I don't. I would prefer he wasn't bigoted. But it does, it, for me, it just it is no impediment in my enjoyment of his message, of his cinema, of his filmmaking, none of that. And in this one, he does present an, an interesting depiction and um, like in real life I think for instance the bloke who assisted Ron Stallworth was not Jewish but in this film as played by Adam Driver Flip Zimmerman is Jewish mm -hmm. and he is what's I, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if Gentiles are really very familiar with this term but he's a passing Jew he's ethnically Jewish but not even particularly culturally Jewish yeah wasn't doesn't... really raised Jewish there wasn't really an yeah. issue with his upbringing in any way and and now suddenly and so he's in... an adult and he's in a world where are you Jewish? Are you or are you not? Are you in or are you out? You know, and then he's had having yeah. finally having to confront it. And challenging scenes where Flip, Adam Driver, is taken down to a basement to run a lie detector test. Yeah. With one of these white power Klansmen, the Klansman tells Flip that he thinks that the Holocaust is a lie and that it never happened. And Flip's intelligent, pragmatic response is to say. No, I think that's a fantastic thing that he did. You can't deny that six million were killed. That was an amazing statement. Well done, Hitler. Yeah. And for uh, for a Jew to come out and say that, and as I say, a, a passing Jew as well, uh, a Jew that isn't overtly Jewish, and it's something that's it's talked about a lot in the black community at the moment, like, like gradations of colour and whether people look black or don't. These are interesting things to me, and it was interesting that after many, many films with negative depictions and Jewish stereotypes Spike Lee chose to make one of the central characters Jewish and make it 
um, make him wrestle with that and think about, well, you know, all my life I've been able to just be a bloke. And now, oddly enough, I'm Jewish. I, I feel more Jewish in my interactions with these clansmen. Just that and its interplay with Ron as well. Experiencing the film minute to minute, I found that exciting and interesting. I like that um, late on, Nicholas Turturro is introduced, and I thought, well, they, did they let Sicilians into the clan? But I, I did check, and, you know, it actually, it's true. It was David Duke, played by Topher Grace in the film, but it was David Duke who essentially opened up the clan mm. and uh, allowed Catholics and non-Protestants to join the clan. There's a lot more to say about this. We'll have to keep it brief, but I want to say we were interested in Topher Grace's performance, and I liked it, and I liked... It's a film about race... There is no uh, no attempt made to explain why these characters are racist. Mm. Most of the time, blacks and whites are kept entirely separate. Uh, but that, uh, I mean, that isn't that the, that's the point of view of the of the clan, right? That, but um, I think at one point David Duke says, um, in one of his many telephone conversations to Ron, where he thinks he's talking to a white Caucasian, "Hey, the clan, that the organisation isn't inherently racist. We support all races. We just think they should all keep to their own." Yeah, and that's kind of you're right. The film's sort of about that. It's uh, people are uneasy it... when there's uh, a black guy, Ron in this case, in the room assigned to David Duke as uh, his bodyguard. But by and large, um, the races are just they're segregated, right? Yeah, and it's something I think about and I worry about as well. I think that we have, as a Western civilization, we have only had integration for. 50 or 60 years and integration is challenging it's difficult really to get, difficult uh, to, look i don't want to make light of it but it's hard enough house sharing it's hard enough when you yeah. move in with your girlfriend for the first time the first year everyone i've ever spoken to the first year living with your girlfriend is hell because you finally moved in you're really looking forward to it and then you realize oh beyond a lover and a partner i've got another housemate and i have to i have to know all about the housemate tropes yeah. that you know that this person this person has their likes dislikes their habits what they're doing uh how they choose to you know conduct themselves i have to take all of this on board now and you're right i, I know i'm making light of it i don't mean to be trivial no but no. but you're right yeah, integration's been around for such a short space of time that's one of the best ways to make this accessible at the at a level that at the most basic level that all of us can understand at that i think it's it's valid to do that but i'm so concerned by what i see as a move towards segregation. I don't think we've had long enough at this integration kick. I think we should stay on this tip for a little while longer and see how it plays out. It's ch Yeah, it's utterly challenging to bring everyone together. America's been doing it for only about 130 years. Godfather Part 2 times, end of the 9th century. Britain's been doing it for about 70 years, I suppose. And I think we do it pretty well here. Mm. That's why I don't like when racist and racial arguments are transposed from the US by Twitter and clickbait liberals to this country. We don't have in the UK the same racism as they do in the US. The US and and this is the thing like American cultural imperialism dictates that if it's true in America it must be true everywhere. They're so ignorant. Yeah, uh, that, maybe but they don't, don't forget it wasn't long ago you know the in the 80s there there were a lot of race rights going on. Um between, well, especially between the police and, and black people in Liverpool and, and, and London, and I don't know, was it that long ago? Well, no, I, I, it's only a generation, you know, I, it's shortly before I was born, so it's within, 
not only is it within living memory, it's really only a generation and a half ago, but look, it's America that is inherently and based in principle upon racist precepts. America is institutionally racist from the get-go. It was built on the backs of slave labour. In its constitution, it didn't accept black people as people. That's not the case with the UK. I, I, I just won't have it. White Americans and America in general should be ashamed for its own country. It doesn't mean the rest of us Europeans should be. And uh, <laughs> this is funny because I, I can't imagine there's another podcast where a, <laughs> a Caucasian podcaster is saying, don't be ashamed to be European, while at the same time saying, but go and see Black Klansman because Spike Lee is one of my favourite directors. <laughs> you know what I mean? There seems to be a dissonance there. But um, This is deeper. Uh, it's deeper than I thought. <laughs> when, I pour, when I purchased my ticket to see Black Klansman on my own the other week... Uh, the the guy who sold me the ticket asked me how I would choose to pronounce the film because he said he'd been <laughs> hearing different different ways to pronounce it all day, and yeah, I thought that's as that I thought that's as deep as this conversation was maybe going to get. But but nevertheless, you went there, Fetch. You went there. That's uh, that's uh, to your to your credit. Um, and but in in the same way, Spike Lee would not shy away from his own opinion, nor have you. Um, for the record, I've been saying Black Klansman. And I did quip to the guy. It reminded me of when *Inglorious Bastards* came out, and everyone was too embarrassed to say to say the title of the film out loud. Which is, I think, that's a silly level of censorship. You know, they're not dropping the C bomb. It's the word "bastards." It's a great word. Say it, bastards. And the way it's said in the film as well, with the Boston accent, bastards. Yeah, it's a great word. Isn't it even um, spelt like that in the title? Yeah, it's spelled with an E. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's yeah, intentionally misspelled, but as oddly as. As uh, oh, Spike Lee won't like us talking about Quentin Tarantino's work on a podcast dedicated to his own films, but Quentin Tarantino said he didn't want to explain it because he said to explain it would be to take the piss out of it. Yeah, and he liked he liked it going unexplained, but I think it's meant to replicate the Boston accent yeah. of Eli Roth's character, the yeah. Bear Jew, Donny Donovitz. Yeah, other things I like to I'll, I might come circle back to the whatever I was babbling about two minutes ago, but other things I liked about Black Klansman. I liked the low-level drone of Topher Grace's David Duke. I mm. liked that he provided something of uh, not a Greek chorus, but a, a, and you can't even say an evil Ned Flanders. He's just, <laughs> but it's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's a genial, banal presence in the background, muttering away on talk radio, mm. pontificating like a man talking to himself. And there's a lot of talk in the picture um, about radio stations and at what point you tune into which one in which county mm. and the, the the span and scope of the radio stations and uh, i liked that spike was drawing the comparison there between uh, a local or regional radio station in the 70s doing very much the same as what fox news or twitter would do today yeah that's and true he this does, is what he... i mean about but, the, but the, sorry go on well, no, no no sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but to, to be honest with you if for anyone who's been over to America in the past five, ten years, you turn around uh, the dial on on any local local frequency. My God, that stuff's still there. Uh, it's just it's just transposed yeah. to Twitter, but it's still all happening. The um the real t- terribly racist things I used to hear on radio stations in America as I was just going through the dial in the car. This the ear of. Uh, Obama trying to bring in Obamacare, things like that. The, the 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 hatred in people's voices, saying that there was some socialist intervention and conspiracy in American politics, and it had to be stamped yeah. out. Uh, 
and and the, the things they said about Europe and Britain uh, that I heard with my own ears on these stations. So my point being, yeah, you're right, Fletch. You could take it as uh, as some sort of commentary on Twitter, and you're right, but that's still there on the AM dial and the FM dial. Trust me. Yeah. I just want to have their gang, you know, three, four years ago, socialism was the dirtiest word imaginable in American politics. Now, their bloke's in charge. He's cozying up to Russia. He's shaking hands with Russia, an mm. ex-communist state. The baddie from 30 years ago, Ivan Drago, Rocky Four, And they don't care because their bloke's in charge. And I was, a few summers ago, I was in New Orleans and I needed to take a taxi. I don't like taking taxis. And I think that taxi drivers the world over are bigoted in the way that they are because they are utterly dependent upon people they despise. Just like taxi drivers, they spend their entire day and night looking out the window at some of the worst aspects of Western civilization. You know, <laughs> levels of degradation and people pissing in the street and fighting and um, vice. And But they are utterly dependent upon the mercantile exchange of money for their service with those same people. And that would probably make you bitter, and I think that's the reason why all cabbies suck. But I was in a taxi cab with a fella. He's got one of those stations on, and I didn't really know where it was going to go. Um, I don't I don't particularly want to get into an argument with a man who is driving me to my destination in a foreign city. So I didn't I didn't set out to disagree with him, right? But uh, so I did the usual thing of he said something like. They always want to com- They always want to start a conversation, don't they? Mm. Even though, and, and this is the thing that I found baffling. As soon as I spoke, he must have known I was English. Yeah. Am I likely to be racist? Am I likely to be against Obama? What are the chances? You know, like play the fucking odds on that one. It, it seemed ridiculous that he would choose to irritate me immediately. Anyway, so he said something about Obama, and I said like, "Oh, you're not a fan." Words to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. And he and the, he said he hates this country, and he said it with with such pain and confusion in his voice. And you think, how can you possibly think that a man who has dedicated his adult life to public, to service. public service and to the essentially to the betterment of everyone around him, and then everyone in Illinois, and then everyone in America, how can you really think he hates the country? I don't. I can't understand how anyone can derive that message from reality. I know, impressionable, and people who don't have the time, perhaps, to educate themselves because they're working 60-hour weeks. I know those people are susceptible to racist messages and to believing only one point of opinion because it's the only one they can find. But how can you... How can, like, I don't like Theresa May, but I don't think she hates the country. I don't think she hates poor people. Mm. I think her party don't care about poor people. And personally, with Theresa May, I look at her and I see her dancing for African diamonds and doing a kind of second wave colonialism where we're all to go back to Africa to beat the Chinese to it. I feel so sorry for her. I honestly do feel sympathy for her because I think to how she must have imagined her life as a teenage girl and a young lady and a young politician. And there is no way, no way that she could have conceived the debasing things Mm. that she's had to do for the last two years um, so there's just there's such um, ignominy in what she has to do right now that at a human level, with that kind of British reserve, 
which is what I exercise in the taxi cab as well. There's this, even though I identify as European and German, I am British in the way that I don't want to be rude to people. I don't want to just say to the guy, mate, why do you hate blacks, you fucking dum-dum? <laughs> Fuck your cab ride, I'm out of here, you know, I'm bailing. And in, in the same way I look at Theresa Mann, I just think, oh, God, God, like David Mills at the end of Seven, God, yeah, <laughs> how yeah. do you... How is this? Uh, but anyway, sorry, getting back to Black Klansman, we'll wrap it up soon. No, but, it's fine. Uh, one of the performance of John David Washington. I thought it was a competent performance, but what I liked the most was he sounds so much like his father, Denzel Washington, and it made me excited to think that this could extend Denzel's career to an extent, because I like Denzel's delivery. Uh, Denzel's a classically trained actor, and either through hard work or a level of natural ability he has a great voice mm. that's why he got the academy award for training day the stuff he's saying wouldn't sound as good in the mouth of ice cube or kevin hart or dwayne johnson or any number of lesser actors who just don't have the craft that sam jackson and denzel washington do but when denzel washington says i will burn this motherfucker down the cadence and the rhythm to it is honestly Shakespearean. Mm. He knows which he knows which syllables to hit. John David Washington has enough of that about him, has enough of the same voice that I thought, ah, oh, this is great. This is like watching a young Denzel again. He's not aping him and he's not trying to... He's not just copying him. It's, in terms of physical performance and uh, line reading, it's quite different. But it had enough of that Denzel flavour that I really dug it just because of that. And I think it is a good performance that he gives. And one of the things I liked as well, um, I was trying to explain this, but there's so little over racism in the film. If you think, and I don't want to define a picture by what it's not, that's mm -hmm. rather a, a negative and potentially British thing to do. That's what we as Brits do, isn't it? We, we say things <laughs> like, well, we're not expressive like those Catholic Italians. And... Uh, we're not as bureaucratic as the Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a rather British thing to do. But most films about race will depict acts of racial violence and usually, as, as we said, would have blacks and whites coming together and in an effort to, if not explain, then at least depict racial difference. But here they're kept entirely separate and simmering. And so it doesn't... Although it's the KKK, it could be any other ridiculous boys club. There's, and I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, unsurprisingly, and I think that white spree shooters in America, uh, lads who run to join ISIS in Syria, and racists in this country, and white racists, the clan there, and any number of uh, complexions and cultures and races within them, there is uh, a young masculinity which needs to find a positive outlet. And if it doesn't find that positive outlet then it will be attracted to some weird stuff. But they're looking for the same things. They're looking for community, kinship, feeling like a big man, drive, and a mission as well. A lot of young men are looking for a mission. And that mission can be defending the Islamic faith in Syria, or it can be making a bomb uh, in Colorado Springs. Mm. The actual action is unimportant. It's having a, a focus and a purpose that's important. And that's why... It's, it's manifestations of the same thing, you know. They will always want the things we've talked about. They will always want a kind of roustabout physical companionship. They will want to um, feel strong, mm. if if not physically strong, then then have a like all of us. Most of us want to, to an extent, feel powerful mm. and to be heard. 
We need to figure out a way for men to do that safely without hurting other people. Otherwise, they are still going to run off to join ISIS or they're still going to plant bombs or shoot each other in ridiculous postcode feuds and mm. disputes. It's messed up. And I think a picture like Black Klansman makes me think about all that stuff, in addition to being well acted. Yeah. And I don't know how great the film is, but all of those... I feel like all of those themes are touched upon, not necessarily explored in detail. But we're shown, you know, those those clansmen. It, again, it doesn't. They say that they hate blacks, but it could be anybody. They just need a purpose. They just want a goal. Mm. Yeah, you, you you feel there is an element of just the boys' club, and they're they're looking for some sort of legitimacy. And the fact that they're even interacting with Topher Grace's character as the head of the organization in some way legitimises their little uh, weekly yeah. beer club, you know, and, and so there is yeah, an element yeah. of that. And when they're trying to talk about how much they hate uh, black people, they're often pretty inarticulate and uh, it's yeah. it, it, there's no reasons. They're not listing reasons why they hate them. It's just that they seem to be everywhere now and you didn't used to see as many of them on the telly and now you do. It's 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 interesting. I'm always reminded of John Lydon's uh, quote from uh, many many years ago, and uh, it's always stuck with me. And it's something that it's a, it's a lesson that's always rung true with me, and that I've never forgotten. Which is when you're powerless, you hold on to any power that you have. Um, and I think that that's a reason. You know, that's when someone likes to. You know, so, someone who who's in a bureaucratic situation and doesn't issue you the form because that's yeah. the power that they hold over you or indeed if uh if your little weekly beer meeting uh is 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 what you have to give you a sense of community uh in a world that otherwise you feel has gone mad and you've lost your place within yeah you're absolutely right some people feel powerless through whatever reason it's likely to be Problems in adolescence. A lot of stuff goes back to that. It's glib and it's obvious, but it's true. Those people, as as you've said, as John Lydon has said, they will cling to whatever power they have. Now, recently, it's been shown that a few people with an opinion can have the power to... And I'm not casting moral judgments on this, but they've shown that they can get Roseanne kicked off her own show. They've shown that they can have Scarlett Johansson's uh, upcoming film project recast. Mm. They are, they're clinging to whatever power they can find and uh, vibing off that power. And you know what? I don't necessarily want those people to be in positions of power because they haven't shown, they haven't demonstrated an understanding. It's that Jurassic Park thing, isn't it? You know, they're wielding it like a, a kid that's found their father's gun. Mm. It's not appropriate to that kind of tit for tat of, let's get Roseanne. Yes, we got her. And then they come back with, and they get James Gunn. Oh, oh well, that, this is useless. This is achieving nothing. It's not progressive at all. That, I mean, it was. I don't think. I don't know if it's a great film, but there are good performances, and it does deal with things on a thematic level. Yeah. And you're right. I don't care if it's exactly how things went down. It's dealing with. Um, it's dealing with ideas, and I think people forget this a lot in life these days. Uh, like when people go. What a terrible thing for a song to be about. Why is that lyric in there? It, it's about a point of view. Like, when did people forget yeah. that art is about uh, giving a point of view? You're not supposed to suddenly go, oh, this is now the gospel. Uh, let's all... Uh, yeah, yes. This person is uh, giving a point of view and they're saying this is the only, only thing to subscribe to. Uh, you know, a lot of the time it's just, hey, here's another idea for you. Try this one for size. 
and and yes. that's yes. that's what any art is supposed to be. Uh, so I, yeah, it kind of bums me out when people jump on a lot of this stuff. Uh, I mean, my my closing thoughts would be we haven't talked enough about Adam Driver, who, as you've said, goes from great director to great director. Shout out to Michael Buscemi as well. Yeah, you know what? It was. Um, I thought the film was exceptionally well cast. It was nice to see Michael Buscemi's last time I saw him at the pictures. I think was interviewed by his brother Steve. It was a very well cast picture. Nice to see Harry Belafonte with an affecting scene in the middle of it, explaining that race killing. And, you know, and, and again, just like you've said, Black Klansman creates a, a, a miasma of interesting ideas and issues, and I don't need it all to make a coherent whole. But I'm interested in Spike's point of view. I'm interested to spend a couple of hours with him. He, I leave the film thinking about things. I don't know if it's glib of him to connect racism in Colorado Springs at the end of the 70s with the Trump administration now. But what you've said, and what we've tried to identify, that level of powerlessness and people who feel powerless harnessing whatever miserable scraps they have left, that is something that Donald Trump has preyed upon because Donald Trump came out and he told people who felt useless, poor and powerless, he told them, listen, you're still white. And as long as you're white, as poor as you are, you'll always be better than a poor black person. You'll always be better than a poor Mexican because you're a poor white person. For those people that feel that they're at the bottom of the pile, and remember this is the other thing as well. Today in 2018, we're meant to consider people's feelings. If someone says, I feel this, that's my rendering of the situation. We can't just say, well, clearly that's bullshit. We're told as liberals, and liberals are constantly telling us, that the act of feeling and the act of uh, having that emotion is legitimate in itself. Those people that feel downtrodden, that feel discarded, and they have been because they come from uh, shitty steel towns and economically depressed areas that were lost 40 years ago, you know, those people were given something to feel good about. And all they had to do was be white. That's the other thing as well. It's it's, it's, uh, very easy to get people on side if you tell them you don't even have to do anything. You don't have to do a thing. You just have to turn up. And that's what Donald Trump has said to poor white people. You don't have to change any aspect of your life, but you can feel good about being white. And you're like, it's sad that self-esteem is so brittle. Um, mm. Because how do we generate self-esteem? I generate self-esteem not necessarily through my work, but through doing the podcast with you, enjoying myself, having that creative outlet. That's what we're all looking for. Again, going back to what we said about the young people, whether they are Arab, African-American, Caucasian, European they need a, a posit- somewhere positive to put their stuff. If that's removed from them, if there isn't social clubs, if community is lost, if they haven't had the right upbringing, if their parents haven't had the time for them that they needed, then it will go in weird, perverse ways. But one last thing before we go, because it's been quite polemical. I think Spike brings it out of me. But I did want to comment on one of the closing shots of the narrative before the epilogue. But one of the closing shots, the, in- the entire film runs its course and then Spike drops in the shot that he created, that he invented, that he made famous, the double dolly. Now, do you recall it's as there's a knock at the door and then the both of them draw their guns and open the door mm. and then in the hall suddenly they're moving with the camera. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no one, no one else does that shot. Spike puts uh, a camera on a dolly and puts his actors on a moving dolly so that they move as if gliding along the surface along the sidewalk usually yeah and the camera moves with them it's a really wonderful it, effect yeah it's I cool thought, yeah what i thought that was speaking to was a thing that spikes revisited a few times that of that binaries in in do the right thing bill nunn's uh, character talks about it love and hate 
love on the right hand, hate on the left hand. And in Do the Right Thing, we're presented with um, one goal, but with two different approaches. Martin Luther King's opinion of mm. non-violent protest and Malcolm X saying by any means necessary. Yeah. And we have the same thing here in Black Klansman, where Ron says, I will fight the system from within the system. And just as legitimately, his girlfriend says, that's bullshit. You can't work within the system. You have to fight the system from outside the system. And what I saw in that last shot, and this is my interpretation of it, is that that's the the African-American consciousness moving forward. On one hand, kind of like Obama, I suppose, saying, I can change things, but I need to get inside to change them. And on the other hand, saying, no, we need to be completely separate from this society and change it through attacking it from the outside. And they both work. They're both great and they're both terrible, you know. Neither's right, neither's wrong. Mm. And that's kind of scary in 2018 to Twitter, isn't it? Hold on, give me, just give me an answer. Yeah. Give me an obvious answer, Spike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. So I, I, I think Luke and I don't really know how good a film this picture is, but it's necessary to see it. Not because it's a monolith and it speaks to uh, black culture right now, although I think it is in an interesting canon alongside Get Out and Sorry to Bother You of pictures coming out... Uh, the redolent of Putney Swope by Robert Downey. So don't see it because it's important, in quotes. See it because it's a great time at the cinema and you'll leave and you'll think about it and its themes for two weeks. Wow. Yeah, there, there you go. Black Handsman, still on at the cinema. You have been listening to The Evening Glass with Luke Lookboy and Fletcher Walton on one sensational shot. We will be covering Shane Black's The Predator and taking a look back to some of those earlier films. But yeah, get in touch with us about your experience of Predator films because, um, of course, we'll be doing any listener feedback as we uh, delve into Shane Black's new uh, magnum opus as it opens in cinemas mid-September. In the meantime, of course, uh, you can get us on onesensationalshot.com. Get in touch with us there and join the conversation. We're also on Twitter, at OneSensational. And on Facebook, you can follow us there on uh, if you search One Sensational Shot on Facebook. That's where you'll find us. But in the meantime, everyone, thanks very much for listening. This is Luke Lithoy and Fletcher Walton on the Evening Glass podcast, signing off. I gotta go. I'm working. I'm working. I'm working. Doctor, this is the mayor talking. All right, all right. Doctor, come on. What? What? Always do the right thing. That's it. That's it. I got it. I'm gone.